zip lock that Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap I remember nights, I didn't remember nights I damn near went crazy, I had to get it right Now I'm your favorite rapper's favorite rapper Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper The absolute truth, yeah, no Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. It is the booth, September edition. Cody, what's happening? Neeler, how are we doing? Excited to be back with you. I feel like I just saw you a couple days ago, but man, in my life, that feels like a long, long time ago. Well, we just got off the road back from España. Como estas el jet lag? Yeah, mucho, mucho el jet, jet lag. lag. Or I don't know. We might have to hit Google Translate with that one. First, a couple things we got to do up top. First, want to thank Mr. Jeezy. And I want to shout out something that I think Mr. Jeezy would appreciate, and that's Holderness and Born. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Holderness and Born. And I want to talk about their polo shirts for a second. Yes, the fit and fabrics are fantastic, but H&B really changed the game with the collars on their shirt. You can pick out an H&B collar from across the driving range. Why is that? Because it has premium interfacing hidden collar stays and an English cut that is modern, but not too aggressive. Cody, I was in a wedding a couple weeks ago and in my tux, I did not have collar stays. I hated the way it looked. They were, they were folding up on me. So this, uh, this collar discussion here is, is speaking to me right now. What does that all mean? It means you look more polished and more put together. Uh, a great collar frames your face and gives you good posture. I need to work on standing up straight and pulling my shoulders back as well. Personally, I'd like to highly, or I would like to recommend uh, you check out the H&B long sleeve polos. Uh, look for the Farrell, the Abbott, and the Burton on hbgolf.com. I think they're versatile. It's one of my favorite things in my closet. They look great on the golf course. If you're trying to uh, exercise some vesting options, the long sleeve polos are great for that. And they're great for a, a night out in the fall. Uh, again, check them out, hbgolf.com, and use code NLU15 for 15% off your next order. That's hbgolf.com. Code is NLU15. Cody, where are we going today? Neeler, I wore a couple of those long sleeve polos. I know this, we are outside of ad read territory. Sure. You saw me last week. I wore uh, the long sleeve white one one day, long sleeve blue one the next one. I love them. I wear them even in the summertime because you know me. Got to protect yourself against the sun. And I know people uh, start feeling weird when you're wearing, you know, pants, long sleeves, everything. But if you get the right fit and the right fabric of them, you're not going to sweat your life away. You're well, going to be maximizing your protection there. And it's turned into long sleeve season up here. I'm, I'm going to go for a run after this. Can't wait to throw on the long sleeve to go for a run. I'm a big fan of the long sleeve t-shirt and polo. Speaking of sun protection, you know, I came back from Spain I'm back three days now. Can't get rid of my lower lip got so sunburned. I just, yeah, randomly, like everything else was good. uh, But just my lips, I don't know if it was a combination of dry, but listen, lip, lip protection, something we're going to have to invest in here. Re up the, uh, the lip balm collection. Um, You just grow your mustache out, protects themselves. Well, it's the bottom lip. It's not the top lip. I almost feel like the bottom lip maybe was outside of the, the brim of the hat. You know, out there in the the Mediterranean Ooh. sun on the Costa del Sol, did not um, think about that. Yeah, who knows, Cody? Any takeaways? I mean, first time uh, I guess I went to Canada in the summer, but first time back in Europe for me, a mainland Europe since tourist sauce last year. Um, 
Anything you picked up, any idiosyncrasies, anything that, that stuck out to you? Well, you know, I think you and I talked about the toilet situation when Randy and I were in London earlier this summer. Yes. Did not have that situation in Spain. But a couple things that I want to point out that always stick with me. These Europeans, countries, I don't, I don't quite understand the shower situation. You got me a little bit. You kind of, uh, it's like you're inviting a swimming pool onto the shower floor. Why are we the bathroom only- floor, not the shower floor? The issue is the bath. The rest of the bathroom becomes a flood zone, which is that's the true. When I said shower floor, I was assuming that that entire room to me is is the shower room. But you're right, the bathroom floor. Where it's basically you're inviting it to become like a slip and slide in your bathroom. I don't get it. Uh, we're supposed to be conserving towels, but like you need maximum absorption to put to get all this water up. So you end up just using, you know, the towel that I would be saving for tomorrow to put on the floor to sop up all the water. It, it's it's a I don't quite know what to do about it. I'm sure other people are just like, oh, you don't you don't get that much water outside of the the tub or you know shower stall. I don't know what's the matter with you guys, but I know you feel the same way about this topic than I do. The issue is the half shower door or glass partition with no slide and no curtain. And that's fine if you're going to have a tub. So we get some segmentation between the shower slash tub shower and the rest of the bathroom. But these, most of these bathrooms I go to in Europe, they got the half shower like wall or glass wall. And it just doesn't, you know, the water's just bouncing off of us. I will say at this hotel we were at, which looked like an army barracks. Uh, it it had great water pressure, but almost the, the problem then is you got the two like the the hot and cold controls. Yeah, are that's both where de- I was going like, to go next. Delayed the faucets. Yeah, they're like delayed, and and then it's either scalding hot or freezing cold when you feel like you only turned it like a centimeter, um, which is tough, right? Like all, it's just it's a lot a lot of um, you, normally when I hop in the shower first thing because that's how I kick my day off. It's like, I'm not thinking straight. And these European shower situations, I'm really forced to operate early in the morning. And like, it, it, it's almost like problem solved. Like, I don't want to get the bathroom soaked. So I guess I can only go half shower pressure. And then I'm trying to heat it up, but I can't reach the faucet because I'm getting duffed because the shower pressure, I can't get around it. You know what I'm saying? So I'm getting freezing cold water right on my chest, trying to adjust the temp. Just a lot going on, and I and I feel like most times we've gone to Europe the last few times. The shower situation is is kind of been across continental Europe and the UK, of course. The other thing that was brought to my attention that we need to address is the lack of top sheet, and I noticed this earlier this summer as well. Now, for me, I um, you know we have a top sheet at the house. I believe I'm told that the top sheet is there to to protect the duvet from getting dirty over time. I don't know why anything would be really getting dirty. I shower at night and I get in my bed clean. Um, but you never know what's going on. Obviously, some, some tomfoolery every once in a while. You got to make sure that everything's protected. But at our hotel, there was no top sheet there. Um, I also utilize the top sheet because a lot of times I get hot in the middle of the night and I like to kick the duvet off, but I also like having something on top of me, not just laying there completely exposed. So I think the top sheet comes in handy there, but we were top sheet less, as I stated, 
uh, at our hotel, and I didn't really notice anything too crazy about it. But you know, that might have been specifically your room. I I did have a top sheet and a blanket. Well, um, maybe they're but, running short on top sheets. But I agree with you that not having a top sheet in a hotel or an Airbnb would, you know, unless I'm going to struggle with that. Uh, feels like a, you don't know you, you, these people aren't washing their chains. Well, that's a Peggy Schuster special. My mom taught me since I was like in fourth grade. Like first thing you do in a hotel room is you you roll back the comforter. And this was like pre duvet days. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, we, yeah we're not the, we're not touching the comforter. Okay, then it wasn't even a comforter. It was like uh, remember when they used to have like the decorative like just thing that laid on top of all the blankets, and you're like, hey, you get that thing out of here. You know that thing's never been cleaned. And your mom, just like my mom. Linda would always tell me, hey, you just got to pull that back and get to the, you know, get to the pocket of the sheets. That's where that's where you're going to be at anyway. All that other stuff, they don't change. And I remember, I think I was told they they change it weekly, which I always thought was maybe a stretch, but who knows? Sounds like TC's music to me. Yeah. Um, all right. I got something else I want to talk to you about. Uh, I want to talk about the plug and adapter situation. Okay. <laughs> So I, I showed up and I had my uh, what I thought was the proper adapter. Uh, turns out it was a UK adapter, and I, I I guess just realized that the UK has a separate adapter from from continental Europe, and which would be like the three prong. Yes, the big the UK three prong. The three prong one, but the prongs are pointing like forty five degree angle. Uh, and then the one we needed in Spain was the two like skinny. Um, I don't know what, what would you call that like almost like pitchfork looking yes. uh inserts plugs um circular right listen we're not we're not electricians we don't know what this shit is but well, it's both two, the european ones the wide two plug so i you know what you know what i finally i i've been asking myself this because i forgot i didn't have the adapter so i'm bumming off of yours luckily you brought a you know a power strip that was that was clutch and you know what i, I just want to say i appreciate uh you left early and i was staying an extra day you left the uh, adapter on the table for me, uh, which which came in handy because otherwise I would have been searching around Malaga for probably an hour looking for an electronics store that probably wouldn't have been open because they would have been on a siesta because I, I feel True. like the stores are closed more than they're open. Um, <laughs> but regardless, I did I did some research. Okay, so how many different plugs or I guess adapters do you think there are around the globe? Ooh, wow. Worldwide. I'm going to go with three. 15. Okay. There are 15 different plugs based on electrical systems across domestic plugs. Okay. Domestic plugs. Domestic, oh, wait. Are like we talking whole, about like domestic, like this is for like washer and dryers and refrigerators? Because those are obviously like, you know, we're talking uh, watts and amps here. They're your different well, requirements. Needed. We're talking about like domestic outlets, basically like electrical systems that are standardized for different countries in a domestic home. So 15 okay. different ones, right? Which kind of blew me away. And so I'm like, well, and, and of course in my head, and, and we got on this talking about the plugs of like, God, you know, we got all these different plugs for just regular houses. What are we going to do with EVs, man? As all these car companies push into electric vehicles, like we can't even standardize that in the U S between like Tesla and Ford. Like, what are we doing? Like, this is going to, this could be a problem, Right. So I'm like, all right, how did this start with the regular grid? So it turns out Edison, Tesla, Westinghouse, all the boys back in the 18, I think 1880s, 1890s, the U.S. system was the first one. It got standardized at a voltage of 110 volts, right? So that's still to this day 
110 volts is what, you know, the outlet that this computer and this camera are all plugged into in our houses uh, and our homes in the U.S. Uh, now, if you would have asked me that, I would probably have said that the U.S. system would have been last. But it turns out we were the first one to, to really run up the electric grid. So then I love this. Europe came came after us because I would have said the same thing. But then you think about it, you're like, ah, oh, well, Edison did kind of, you know, and Westinghouse, they kind of yep. going at it back in the late 1800s. Uh, and this stuff starts to, you know, sprinkle out from urban areas on the East Coast. So we have the two prong. It was, it was the two prongs, the two little prongs for a while. And then they went to a three prong plug is kind of standardized now in the U.S. since the 1970s. Do you know what that little third one at the bottom is for? I'm going to get there for you. Oh. So the right one is the hot plug, right? That's where the charge is. The left one, the smaller, which is slightly smaller, is the neutral one. And so then you flip the light on, and that's where the current kind of circulates, right? And then the third one in the middle, below the two, is the ground plug. That's right. You from getting, you know, turning into Mar from Home Alone. And I guess it, it, like the earth, you know, it, it earths the, uh, the charge basically. I've uh, ground, I've hot wired, uh, many of things in my life. Uh, yeah, see, I'm it's not, not I'm good when been, you get them flipped around and stuff like that. I've never felt great about fixing like light, you know, I'll, I'll change light bulbs obviously, but I don't really want to put light fixtures in, uh, you know, that's, <laughs> that's not, you know, but Hey, listen, we're, 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 we're getting, we're getting our knowledge up here. Um, for my, you know, future high school class that I teach. One of them will be r- running some elect- electrical uh, outlets. Um, all right. Schuster. So when Europe started to build out their grid in, in the late 1800s, 1900s, uh, they realized that supplying power at 220 volts would be cheaper. At a higher voltage, electric companies can deliver the same power with less current which allows for thinner wires. So what it comes down to is they wanted to use less copper because copper yep. was expensive. I think it still is expensive. Uh, so we use a lot more copper in our wiring in this country. Uh, please, any electricians out there, feel free to detonate me. I'll, I'll make a culpa of this, but that's, that's from, from the, the just vast research I did this morning. Uh, that's what we got. So basically, higher voltage equals less copper wiring. And then the rounded pins, the ones we were using in Spain, those are said to fit more securely in the socket. Um, Which I call bullshit too. Yeah, I do too. And I also think that like from a, you know, maybe this is just by American bias, but like, I feel like our outlets are a little more efficient as far as space goes. Like we always have mm-hmm. two, whereas you get that giant circle, you got to stuff the adapter the, or the plug into. It's just like takes up a lot more room. It's not as aesthetically pleasing. It doesn't have the cap on it. It just, it looks a little like half finished, uh, but apparently it's more efficient and it's cheaper. Now, so we, as we've established, mainland Europe uses less copper than the U.S. And then the U.K. uses less than mainland Europe. And so the history there is that the U.K. switched, uh, switched it up after World War II because there was a massive copper shortage. So that's where they came with the three-prong approach. And I'm not sure if the, the bottom one's a, a ground or not, but apparently there's the the fuse is in the plug. That's why the plugs are bigger in the UK. You know, so you Ooh. plug something in and they're like, they almost look like the washing machine plugs. Yeah. And apparently that's because they had to use less copper on the circuitry and they wanted to use 220 volt as well. And so they, you know, built out like basically any homes built in the UK after World War II are, are using that, uh, that plug system. So, wow, that's where we're at. 
so I didn't, I, I was curious if it was just like people being stubborn or, or, but there's, you know, it's, it basically comes down to, to cost, which, you know, probably could have assumed that, but uh, the more, you know, Neil, that's tremendous research. Thank you. You made me smarter today. A couple things stuck out to me. We talked about the mainland Europe two plug and I, I can see where they're going, how they think that it fits in tighter, but the the length, they, they're long needles on the end of it. They're also very easy to break. And that's happened to me a couple of times in my travels around the globe. The second part of it is that just because they're, they're lacking that third plug, so it just is naturally more wobbly. And it, the same thing happens in America when you have a two plug 110 versus a three plug 110. And it just isn't, you know, it, it, the lack of surface area really matters here. Um, on the, the European side, it kind of shocks me what you said. I appreciate the fact that the fuse is, is built in there. Um, but I, I think, I know the third plug is a grounding plug, but I've also th seen the third plug for some reason be plastic before. And it makes me think that that third plug is strictly just base for kind of support to make it security yeah make it fit there and and not be able to wobble around or anything i wonder why they're at 45 degree angles well it's just the the frustration with the european plugs is that they're just bulky so when you pack these adapters they just take up a ton of like a ton of space because if you got you know and then you got one then you got to put the you, then you have to bring a power strip because you're, you're getting less efficiency i just wish they were a little smaller but i guess i guess they can't be we're stuck with it because, you know, you're not going to, you can't really standardize this stuff once the houses have been built. And and no country is going to be like, all right, cool, we'll go to the, you know, the North American <laughs> plugs. Yeah. Yeah, sure. nobody's going to listen to North America. But then anyway. in my research, I also found out that like, especially the two prong ones in the U.S. are like notoriously like start fires. They're like, like our yeah. 110 volt system is like not safe. And it's not stable at all. <laughs> it's just, uh, well, you know, that, that makes sense. I, I guess, you know, aesthetically pleasing, but but bad for fire insurance uh, claims, maybe. <laughs> I wonder what they use in, like, South America. I know Canada is, like, the, the U.S. system. Canada's the U.S. system. It sounds like North America is all on the same system. I, I haven't been to Mexico in, like, four years. I can't, can't remember bringing an adapter down there. Um, I've gone to Mexico quite a bit. The, you know what? In Argentina, it, it, was a different, uh, it was a different plug. I think it was a European plug, if I remember correctly. Which would make sense. Yeah. Sorry, you know, it's what, not what you uh, about Mexico. Well, Mexico, I'd say like I, <laughs> I can't tell you. Uh, well, zero times actually that I've ever stayed at like a true local Mexican spot. Everything is very, very westernized and, sure. and built for the the American tourist that's coming in. Um, but you know, America, it's just uh, I I agree kind of with the rest of the world here. I wish uh, across Europe that they. would they'd come together and kind of create a universal plug. I, I appreciate what happened with Apple and the lightning connector. I think that, uh, I think there was a lawsuit and that's yes. what forced, forced every, everybody away from the lightning, lightning and moving it to USB-C, which I appreciate. But America, the last thing that we should be like proud of is our power grid. Like it's one of our number one vulnerabilities to outsiders. And also number two, it's like, it kind of stinks when you start looking at it. it it's not not good, uh, especially like you know. Think about it back in the back in the olden days, how many house fires there were. Not only from so people people's places used to start on fire all the time because 
there was no real electricity and you'd have like wood burning stoves everywhere. So that shit obviously is going to light whatever it is on fire. There's no real standards for how you're constructing whatever home that you're staying in. And then all of a sudden these smart people come around and say, we're going to put electricity in your house. But it's one of the most unstable things that there possibly is. You got wires exploding all over the place. Then people start getting smart and say, wait a second. When the insurance industry started bucking its head, they're like, we can get around and start making money on this. So we started, uh, you know, just basically being, having arson fires everywhere and getting away with it. It's tough. It's nuts. The last thing that America should ever be proud about is the actual power grid. I've got a book for you. I read a while back. I may have recommended it on this pod before. The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future. It's a fantastic book. I read this in like 2015. I, I might reread it. It's just all about wheeling power and uh, how the grid works and, you know, how you got to balance it and how that leads to blackouts, like the ones that you have in big techs when there's the the uh, ice storms. I know. Not, not good. Uh, you know, Neil, I am going to order that book. You're going to be my... Uh, accountability buddy and on the next booth i'm going to give you we'll, we'll discuss what happens in the book oh that's what i need hell yeah let's do it i i would right. love to lo, lo, i can i can skim back over it i think i uh i think i still have it here with me you can hold me accountable uh, for that for sure the other wild thing have you ever been by a transformer when it's been like struck by lightning or anything it it is one of the loudest noises i've ever i've ever been around and i've like you know, in the military, like played with thousands and thousands of grenades and bangers and bombs, like you name it. A transformer blowing up literally like shakes you to your core. I I can't say that I've ever been. Maybe I've heard it and I didn't know it. You know what I mean? But I've never like been around one when it's happened. What's the what's the loudest toy, as you say, in the military? The loudest? Yeah. Like, what's the loudest? What what machine or weapon creates the loudest noise? I mean, we, uh, we I've been on Target before where we've called in, like, danger close strikes directly next to us. And you have to get, like, you know, 300 meters standoff because you're about to drop whatever poundage of warhead directly on whatever you want to be blown up, people or buildings or, you know, any sort of infrastructure. And it's not so much the noise, it's like the aftershock, the overpressure from the the explosion, like will mess up your insides. Oh, Jesus. What about the flat what about the flashbangs that like flashbang grenade? Are those loud or are those just like uh they're kind of loud. So they're they're specifically like built to first of all flash. So they're flashing in front of your eyes and supposed to stun your eyesight. So it basically is like you know, I don't know if you've ever had spots when you closed your eyes, but think of sure. that instead of it being like dark and having a couple little white spots floating around, thinking of it being like as the brightest white that you could ever, ever see. Um, and then there is a noise because it, it's, it's supposed to st like stun and then without damaging and then make like a permanent, not permanent, but like basically like a, a five minute ringing uh, in your ears. So it's they're very very effective now there's there's multiple different bangers as we'd say flash <laughs> grenades we call them bangers so there's like single bangers that are a lot louder and brighter and then you have three bangers 
that are th- uh, just as they sound, and then you have six bangers, and then you have nine bangers. Like fucking fireworks. <laughs> Not, I used to like rock nine bangers all the time, and it got to the point. I'll say this: in the when we when I was very very young in the military, we didn't really use them that much. It was very much like a, a point of pride of like, oh, the first man, like you know, first man through the door, and you kind of go. But then you started having people like barricaded shooters like in the entry hallway and um like basically just majority of people were getting injured via being shot or like blown up being the first guy through the door and we had to figure out a way to deter that so first guy through the door uh like very very standard now is you throw a banger in before any guys enter just because whoever is potentially hiding back there like you want them to be you know temporarily stunned dazed and confused yeah because you know you're coming in and like they they have the home field advantage they know the layout of your house we're coming in pitch black under night that's what's surprising that you wouldn't you weren't doing that to begin with like of course you would think of course the first guy through the door is gonna get listen neil i'm not this probably isn't the first time that anybody's told you this but there's a lot of like really dumb shit that the military and the government does yeah, for not to sound no like reason. captain obvious <laughs> they like get a they got a lot of people fucking hurt and that was definitely one of them okay uh let alone the fact that when you're like walking through a door so if you open a door and it's pitch black no matter what is on the other side nothing is ever at the same exact light sure so like having it being dark like nothing's really dark because you're getting a ton of ambient light so not no matter what if, if, if you're standing in, say, your bedroom tonight and you're laying in bed uh, with your beautiful, beautiful bride and the door is open and you're looking out to your living room, those rooms are not the same like shades of darkness. Sure. So anything that stands in front or moves in front of that doorway, it's you're going to be silhouetted. Easily seen from inside the room. 100%. But the person so you, walking into the room can't see shit. Exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah, it's really silly the way things used to be done. Those obviously have improved over time, but then, you know, you started throwing, everybody starts throwing bangers all over the place. Uh, I've also, what you call like eight bangers. I used to eat bangers all the time where sometimes uh, the fuse wouldn't be exactly precise on like how long from the time that the, you know, I don't know if you, you so like every grenade or banger, there's basically like three main components, the actual cartridge of whatever it is. Then you have the fuse and everything. And there's, there's a lot more, but I'm going to describe it as three main things. So the cartridge that is the, the cylindrical object, you have the spoon that lays on the side and then holding the spoon into the actual fuse on top of it is a pin. And everybody knows, oh, yep, you pull the pin and all basically it is, is the pin is the safety mechanism to make sure that it's not just going to randomly go out. Well, from the time, uh, and nothing can happen as long as you're still holding the spoon down with the pin removed. But as soon as you let go of the, the spoon and it releases itself from the firing mechanism, uh, there's naturally at all the way from like a quarter of a second all the way to like a three second cook off period before that the banger or grenade actually goes off. For grenades, it's usually six or seven seconds. People back in the day used to be told to like, oh, yep, you pull the pin, you would hold on to the, you know, you'd drop the spoon, you'd hold on it, and then you'd throw the grenade. But like, dude, 
you cannot trust the timing on those things at all. They go from like grenades go from like a second and a half burn time to like a seven second burn time. So you would have people still holding the grenade in their hand, waiting like one Mississippi, two Mississippi, three Mississippi. Nah, get rid of that thing right away. So what happened is that you get trained over and over and over. They pull the pin, drop the spoon. And really, I wouldn't even drop the spoon. I just throw the spoon and the banger or grenade at the, not grenade, but uh, throw the banger at the exact same time and they would fall off together. Um, but I would be, we would be too quick coming in that like when you're standing over top of it is when it would go off. So you would kind of get fucked up too a little bit. Um, Eating bangers, bangers yeah. only, man. God, you know what? This is what people get in, in the booth. They get, we were talking about power outlets in continental Europe. Now we're talking about bangers. That's, that's, that's the trap draw difference right there. It is very, very wild that more, uh, you know, I wonder how much an actual banger costs because I've gone through thousands and thousands of them. God, it's nuts. That's... Let alone that's the same thing in training. Yeah. You got to train like you fight, right? Sure. Anywho. That's a electric electricity talk here with old Neil and well, Cody. Read, yeah, read the grid. Let's we'll talk about it next time. I, that's a that's a good follow up. Some good next steps there. I don't know if it's going to make me feel very safe living in Texas. I'll I'll tell you that first and foremost. I know that there's major issues here. Also, let me ask you this: When you moved into your new apartment, was there just like one power provider? Uh, like yeah. one. Okay, what, who's your electric company? We have National Grid for gas. Uh, electric is Con Edison. Okay. I think. How does Con Edison do their, like, charging? Uh, do you New know York. this stuff? Let me just confirm that. Con Edison, yeah, for sure. Powering New York City and Westchester. How do they do their pricing? So, basically, they're, I'm sure they're like, yeah, we have, like, a monopoly over this area, and this is the price for the power that we're providing. I don't know. I haven't really dug into the bill. All I, all I know is these, I got these massive, ugly, like AC slash heater units in each room and they're so inefficient. And so they, they, you get dinged for, you know, running gassed. hot. Well, electricity in the summer with the AC is brutal. I mean, I, I'm happy to have AC, so shouldn't complain too much, but they're just loud and bulky and the electric bill gets run up on them and then in the winter you're getting you're getting dinged for both electricity and gas on these units which is tough Ooh, that ain't good yeah so but most of the time that most of the apartments i've lived in in new york have these old steam heaters which you know they sound like someone's playing like for whom the bell tolls (laughs) when they when they turn them on in the fall you know pipes are cranking up (laughs) you know and you gotta make sure you don't like uh burn yourself on them they're like they're always like in an inconvenient spot in the room where like oh cool like let me pin my bed up against this thing and then you know the sheets like disintegrate after a, a week uh so and i guess the, the beauty of that is because you can't really adjust those things like they have like one little knob so it's almost like the faucets we were talking about yeah. the shower you're like i don't know if i have it on the right setting uh so at least these electric units are give me a little more flexibility but it'll cost you man it'll cost you so i don't know the pricing i i just know my bill is higher than i want it to be this is the moral of the story and I don't, I don't really have any say over it. Like, it's not like, well, let me call yeah. Con Ed and say like, oh man, you guys are ripping me off. I'm, I can't take my business elsewhere. Well, I got an example for you that's on the flip side of that. So I kind of grew up the same, my entire life I, I've spent 
the same way that you have discussed. You have your energy provider and they provide this whatever section that you live in and like that's it. That's your one one shot. Not here, man. Where we move to, it's literally you got a buffet of options from like 12 different power companies. Really? And I don't know who actually is like where the actual power is coming from. Like, I don't know whose power this is, but there's literally, I have like 12 different options for, for power providers here. And all of them go off different things. They all go off, uh, you know, are your, you, you know, normal 24 hour a day service. Some of them charge extra for peak service time. So like they'll run like an eight to five upcharge of like, running like 15 cents per kilowatt. But then at nighttime, they'll get you down to where you can get like, you know, six, seven cents per kilowatt or something like that. Some of the companies have built in free time where it's like you get free power between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. So they're trying to balance the grid, man. Yeah, it's, it's there's a lot of options. So my, my wife, Yari, she is tracking all of this stuff and we actually haven't, there's an app that you can have that like, naturally tries to find you the best deal and a lot of these companies here they're so used to like people selling all these deals there's no like you know service disconnection fee like basically this month i can be with this company and transfer over to the next month because they have like some new false sale on fucking power but but they're all running through the same wires it's nothing is changing literally just your bill is changing it's almost like my home mortgage where like people are just Oh yeah, we're just selling this to the next company and whatever. That's bizarre, you know, man. It's it's so so weird. No, literally nothing changes for us outside of like who we're actually paying. Cuz I always thought the electric stuff was kind of like the cable company where it's like such a high upfront cost to, you know, outfit a city with this infrastructure that it's like cool, it's going to be a monopoly and it's going to be regulated. Is like you would think, you know. And actually speaking of the cable company, we've got Spectrum but also Fios and the I got the Verizon Fios. It's been really good. And I think the competition yeah. between those two is, has been a, probably a good thing in my area. Um, well, good. So, and you know what else gives you power, Cody? Coffee. Specifically, Ooh. Stone Creek Coffee. And the folks at Stone Creek Coffee want you to get the most out of your morning cup. Too many daily coffee drinkers are settling for old, stale, over-extracted brews every day. And that's not good. We hate that. Hate it. You wouldn't drink bad wine, so why would you drink bad coffee? Stone Creek is certified B Corporation and sources their coffee directly from farms around the world and roasted in downtown Milwaukee. Shout out to DJ Pie. When you order from Stone Creek, you know your coffee is going to be fresh. They have a large lineup of different bean offerings from light roast to dark roast, exotic rare microlet releases, and accessible everyday coffees. If you're interested in leveling up your coffee game at home, visit stonecreekcoffee.com forward slash trap draw to check out their lineup of coffees. We have two exclusive NLU brews, coffee coffee products, and they also have the, the only NLU mug currently in existence uh, is being sold by Stone Creek Coffee. So go to stonecreekcoffee.com forward slash trap draw. Use code trap draw for 15% off and free shipping on your first two orders. Uh, I have been actually made some Stone Creek this morning. Uh, I did the um, the blocky brew. Uh, that we got up at the uh, mid mid midsummer festival up at Aaron Hills, um, and also played Love with uh, with Drew. And if you want better coffee for your workspace, email Drew at StoneCreekCoffee.com, and he'll work with you on a coffee program that matches your company's needs. Shout out to Stone Creek Coffee. Love those guys. Uh, yeah, thanks, Drew. And then you know it. what? 
the czar is going to take over here. We're going to throw a little NLU house ad in here. This episode is also presented by the No Laying Up Pro Shop. That's right. If you haven't bought from us in the past, it's a great time to take a spin around the shop. Store.nolayingup.com. Over the next month, two months, we're ramping up. We've got Holderness and Born Fall Apparel coming in next week. Limited edition FootJoy Apparel. Head covers, ladies' gear, towels, tees, socks. We got a ton of stuff, Cody. I'm really pumped about the fall collections. Um, so the best way to stay up to date with the new releases and be the first to know about promos that we're going to be running in October and then the uh, you know holiday promos we've got in November and December is the email newsletter. So sign up, newsletter.nolayingup.com. Uh, starting October, there may be some you know offers for first-time purchasers. If you sign up for the newsletter, so head over there, really? newsletter.nolayingup.com uh, or store.nolayingup.com. Truly, we appreciate the support. Pumped about yeah. the merch we, we've got in production right now. Absolutely. Could not uh, echo those comments any anymore. Hey, how do you think the, uh, the FootJoy collabs are going? Very good. And we've got some good stuff coming in. Uh, hopefully, I think it's we'll put a newsletter out next week with some FootJoy polos, some hoodies. Um, some of that stuff. So, uh, I know you've been to some roost events this summer. I went to a couple of roost events. Well, that's like one of the hottest items was the, the titleist slash NLU hats. Yes. And I know we got a couple of those, got some more in uh, a few weeks back and man, hotcakes, man. Can't hot keep cakes. them around. Uh, a couple of, one other thing I wanted to touch on from our travels to Spain, uh, the outdoor uh, parkour <laughs> workout facilities in Spain. Uh, I went to Spain like five or six years ago, went to Barcelona and Madrid. And I remember it from that trip. All the public parks have like workout equipment and not just like pull-up bar, monkey bars. It's like parallel bars. They've got like, uh, and it's all like analog technology, like analog elliptical thing, uh, analog, like chest press and chest pull down machine, which is like using your body weight. You're like sitting in a yep. seat and lifting your body weight up. And I just love it. And I stayed, like I said, I stayed an extra day uh, and I went for a run and I ran down to the Mediterranean Sea and down there on the, you know, by the beach, there was just an awesome workout, outdoor workout facility, public workout equipment. And it just makes you want to like, yeah, I'm going to get a quick pump in, like stop my run halfway. We'll get some pull-ups. We'll get some of these, you know, chest, you know, or overhead pull-down machine, you know, get on the, the analog elliptical. It's just like a cheap thrill. And I feel like that's part of the Spanish culture. And I just wanted to shout it out as, as an awesome part of Spanish culture. Why do you think those aren't more prevalent across America? I, I don't know. I was telling you when we were over there, they've got, there's some down on the Brooklyn waterfront, but it's almost like a, a little bit of a, um, what's the word for it? Like, uh, like, it, like it, it's not normal to see it. You know what I'm trying to say? Right. Like it's either a playground for kids, but there's not really outdoor workout. And I think maybe just the over-commercialization of America. Like, people are going to, like, CrossFit gyms and, you know, there's 55 garage gyms around me in Brooklyn, you know, where you can get a trainer. And But the whole – what I like about the public park thing is the ability to, like, make it a part of your outdoor run. And you don't have to – That's where anybody. I was going to go You don't have to with sign it. up. You don't have to do a fucking tour. You yep. know, with the, the the front desk manager, you know, oh, yeah, we'll give you a free workout, but you got to sign up and, like, sign all these waivers first and do all this stuff. It's like, no, man, I just want to, like, find a convenient pull-up bar and and bang out some push-ups and pull-ups in the middle of my run. And that's in 
you know, maybe do some leg work if you've got like an analog leg machine. And that's what you're getting. It, it makes it almost more the culture. Like, and I like that. I thought it was sweet. And I mean, we had some late, late dinners, like dinners getting done at midnight, midnight 30, and you still had people downtown, like on their way out doing their, their evening run and stopping at the little, you know, beach gym and I, cranking out sets. I noticed that like the siesta thing is a real thing, like from 2 p.m. to 4 or 5 p.m. It's like nobody's, nothing's going on in, you know, in, in Malaga when I was staying there for the day. And then I went to get dinner. Dinner didn't, the restaurant didn't open until 7 p.m. It closed from, <laughs> I think it was 2 or 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Just, you know, shut down. Uh, which I, you know, I guess a lot of restaurants do that. But uh, when I was walking to the restaurant, it's like five, it was probably 6.30. And it was just the, the outdoor workout equipment was packed, right? People getting it in, man. And it just made me want to go get a workout in. Even though I already got nap workout. It was great. So I'm not sure if I'm down with the siesta. I think it would be so hard for me to get, to get back, like to just not keep sleeping. Um, that's a, I don't know how they sleep at night. Yeah. It just doesn't really, you know, I, I think you can make an argument. It's healthier. It's like, all right, cool. We're going to sleep from, you know, one, 2 AM to what? 7, 8 AM. And then we're going to grind in the morning. Then we're going to take a two hour nap and then we're going to go back and like have our social life after. Why would it be healthier? Well, they say like, you know, you, you, uh, I worked with a guy at Google or he ran the team I was on who was like big into this. Um, and I, and I remember at like a company or a team, you know, dinner or whatever, I was sitting next to him. He's a big burning man guy. Um, JB, he was, he was, he was, you know, I, I, I was, I liked his wavelength, but he was saying he was big into sleeping like six times a day. So this guy had like a nap pod in his office and he would sleep. This is the like, googliest story. Yeah, I've it ever. is. It is. And he was explaining to me like the science behind like technically, if you you know you get through one sleep cycle, you you know max two, then you want to wake up, and then you want to like. So there's an art. There's like s- some theory that if you sleep like throughout the day instead of doing like one big block of sleep, that that's better for. Uh, I'm butchering the science of this, by the way, but that that was his argument. This guy was like. He was kind of running that experiment on himself and, and he was, you know, he was pretty happy with the results. Um, so I, just, I noticed my that point is Spain- I'm getting that maybe the Spanish are onto that. Yeah. I, I, I can see where you're going with that. The, I don't know what time they actually like start their day at. I think that's where I would be most, most concerned because I can get down with a good, I, I noticed that they ate a large lunch. So the siesta yes. post lunch and kind of out of the heat, like that makes sense to me. I also was shocked at how long they said the siesta was. Like they're getting like three hour breaks for these afternoon lunch, and then they're going back to school or work. That kind of was shocking to me. The evening dinner, though, let's let's talk about this evening dinner because it's it's not that it's just uh, late where you're like, oh yeah, you don't like you know, you don't have your reservation or go sit down anywhere till 10. Like, no, you actually like go show up places between like eight and nine. It's just the drinks and like the kind of laissez-faireness of, of the restaurants and everything else like that. You're just not getting food for a long, long time. Yeah. 
And I'm I'm a maybe it's impatient American. I'm I'm a little bit of an impatient restaurateur. So I think we wait until like we're hungry. Yeah. And like when you go and show up to a place, you're like, oh, okay, like, you know, you have an internal like mental clock that you just started of like, I know that in anywhere from 30 minutes to like 45 minutes at the latest, I will be consuming my food. And that just wasn't the case. And no, it wasn't like, if you're prepared for that, like I, I, I'm guessing it's not that big of a deal, but for us, I mean, I honestly, I eat like, you know, at home, I eat like one meal a day. Like I have the lightest breakfast ever. And I just crush dinner. I know. I usually get to that point too. And I'm like, yo, I'm ready to eat. And I think I don't, I want to, like withhold judgment on this. I'm not judging. I'm just trying to, I think for us, we had to get up early too to get out to the right. You know, so that's why I said, I think it all hinges on like what time the day starts. That's a good question. So your your sleep ties into that. Like how much hours you're actually like getting during the SESTA versus what you're actually sleeping at night. Like I can do that. Like I'm, I'm used to only sleeping, you know, four, four and a half hours each night. Like that's fine with me. But like what time we actually start in the day at. Yeah. All right, well, Trap Draw listener line, 833-330-8725. Any Spanish listeners out there, anybody that knows, you know, siesta technique, please leave us a voicemail. We are, you know, we want to learn more about this topic. Um, disappointed that we didn't get to go see the uh, Rock of Gibraltar. I know, I know. It was going to be like an hour drive down there each way and kind of felt like it was going to be a little bit of like, oh, cool, man, this is... Uh, you know, and we could see it from a distance too. Also, on my flight out, I flew right over it, and so that was really? pretty cool. Yeah, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, I saw it right out my my window on the left side of the plane, which was cool. I'm sure, you and all the LPGA players on on the flight just got a <laughs> kick out of that. Yeah, uh, me and Captain Stacy Lewis behind me, we're we're definitely locked into the window. It is fun though on a flight. A little something I've been doing is when you they have really good maps now on the. Uh, in-flight entertainment systems. Yes. And you start to just Tracking. zoom in on the map and track the coastline or tra- be like, try to pick out, all right, this has got to be that town. All right, here, we've got to be flying over the, the Portuguese border. You know, all right, that's where Lisbon is. So you can entertain yourself for a, for a you know, a while doing that uh, until you get out over the ocean and then it gets kind of boring. <laughs> I'm the same way. I've been obsessed with those. Uh, on Delta, they've always had like the, on top of like not just the map but they usually have like a camera that was underneath the aircraft that you could kind of see like you know what you're flying over and everything else i used to watch them all the time for takeoff and landing but now on some of the new planes they have one that's like on the back like on the tail uh wing or whatever the heck it's called where you can see like the actual plane coming in and everything in front of it so it feels like you're playing a video game i watched that on takeoff uh leaving going over on her trip and it I like got sick. I really? like literally got like motion sickness from. I'm like, oh, I can't. I, God, I didn't know that existed. I'm gonna have to check that out if I hop on a Delta flight. But it was gnarly. I'm I'm happy to report, Cody, that my status match with United has. We have we have one more segment, and I'm flying tonight to Charleston. Uh, we got a wedding this weekend. Um, and this will be my last segment, and I will I will have completed my status match with nine days to spare. Pretty impressive there, Neil. Yeah, timed it up well. You know, they got me, man. They got me creating a freaking spreadsheet. They got me playing the gamified. They got me playing the game like a like a little lab rat. Just, you know, trying to find the cheese, basically. 
I hate it. Did you uh did you see the the report uh that Ed put out about the Sky Miles changes? I did. So I th- I feel like my status match mainly for me it was just a lifestyle thing cuz I'm flying out of Newark so much uh and so it's just timing for me, but I, I feel like I timed it up perfectly with with these Delta changes to to the uh, you know Sky Miles Medallion members. I mean, yeah. Cody, I'm sorry, man. Ed is just he's making you he a second class citizen. Did you see all the bottom feeder airlines out there too? Like trying, hey, come on, uh, anybody Delta who Delta loyalists, come on over. We'll do a super cheap status match for you. I mean, like, I saw I saw you had an interview with the Atlanta Rotary Club. This he week. did, and he said, "Yeah, maybe we went too far. Maybe they'll they'll bring back you know some benefits for diamonds like you." But the fact is, we've had diamond inflation, man. There's just too many with COVID, and they you know grandfathering in so much, so many people. They've just created the traffic jam on the uh, on on you know the loyalty stuff. So they had to you do know, something. He did. He admitted that uh, the airline may have overdone the changes, alienating some customers, specifically referencing the Diamond Medallion members, which your true, yours truly is, uh, proud Diamond Medallion members. But, you know, the trap draw most of the time is part of the solution on things. Sure. This might be the one and maybe only time where I admit that I might be part, part of the problem. As a as a diamond member, I don't think, I, I don't think I should be a diamond. Yeah, it's almost like you're you're a legacy diamond. Like you used to yes. fly a ton, and then it was almost like a little bit like PGA Tour cards. Like it's a lot harder sure. to get to diamond than it is to keep your diamond status. Yes, a hundred percent. I agree. And specifically this year, like I haven't traveled that much, so I, ha- I I've continued to enjoy all the perks that come with it when I'm able to with these overly populated lounges everywhere I go. But, you know, I, I don't know. I, it's one of those things. I know TC is just chomping at the bit. He wanted me to make a public statement about it. And I had, uh, I thought long and hard, and, and believe me, there, this was a, a very hot topic in our household because the first thing that Yari did when we moved to Dallas, and she travels quite a bit for work, is she completely switched from Delta to American. And it just blew my mind. I I could not believe it. I questioned loyalty. I wondered if loyalty mattered anything to her. Um, And basically... What what are we doing? Literally, it just shocked me because she used to ride like harder for me for Delta. And she's the first to to admit that like, you know, it, it is the premier air travel service. But at certain points in time, the the ease of access, the availability to get places in single shots, I I agree, and I understand that that is American Airlines at the the city that I now call home. And having said all that, I am going to make a statement that I am staying with Delta Airlines. Wow! Because loyalty matters to me. It is a the premier product. No one else comes close. I don't have to worry about any of the tomfoolery. I'm definitely not going and joining Christopher Solomon with American Airlines. Right? And I thought about doing a status match with United, but I would get nothing because I still would have to have these little short hauls to Chicago or wherever else to get where I need to go. So yeah. it's basically a, a lose-lose for me in my situation right now, except for the current position that I'm sitting in, it's still a win because 
I'm still a medallion member with uh, Delta. Well, there you have it. I think, you know, I would, I would echo that as a, now a, a United man, I think Delta's better, but that's not a secret and everybody knows that. So it's so much harder to get the right status with Delta because of that. You're always kind of at the back of the line. Uh, but there's no doubt that from a process standpoint, I mean, I think they are the the benchmark. I, I would say that to United, though, uh, they are the most improved player in the space. I think they've really yes. done a lot the last, like, three years. Like, I, I haven't had, like, you know, I haven't had a ton of bad experiences. But, like, the, the, the real test is when you do have a bad experience. Like, I had a horrible one with Delta in January. Got boned out of Denver. They, they, they kind of do right. You know, they, they kind of have a problem are they kind of over, um, I don't know. They, they fix, it just feels like their process is better for fixing stuff. I agree with you. Um, are you excited about your travels this weekend? Yeah. So good. Cause now I'm with the status match. I got it locked in for next year. Um, which is good. Cause I, there's all, there's a whole science to it. You know, you start reading these articles. I'm like, how much time have I freaking wasted on this? <laughs> Of like, if you apply for the status match in June, but you don't complete the status match until like right now, then you get it for the rest of this year and next year. However, if you apply for the status match in like January and you complete it in April or May, then you only, only have it year. for the remainder of the year. So it's like Ooh. timing matter. Timing is everything on when you do it. Wow. Who, who's your references for all this information? Uh, you know, the points guy website, there's all these blogs about travel and rewards and stuff. And they've got some good, like detailed stuff on it, but you got it. And the other thing is like, the reason I did it when I did it is like, I knew we were flying to Spain. Like I I was like, all right, I got a ton of travel coming up. You need to like line them up and knock them down in a four month period. So you got to have your shit together because you can only apply for a status match once every five years, I think. So if you don't get it, like basically they, they, Award you like cool. You're a platinum with Delta. You'll go to platinum, and and they'll start the clock and be like, you're a platinum for the next 120 days. And if you want to stay a platinum, you have to fly. Basically, you had to get like 4,000 MQDs, and you had to fly 12, I think, segments. Um, okay, was like the and and MQDs. There's a lot of fine print on that. It has to be on United Metal, meaning like if I had flown to Europe on Lufthansa, or if I'd gone to Canada on Air Canada. Those aren't, those don't count. You get points for those, but you don't get MQDs for those. So, and this is where I'm getting out of like, man, I'm just a lab rat. Like they got me. I'm freaking reading the fine print. I hate it. But you did say that even though you're granted, you were granted temporary status yes. as a platinum, that doesn't mean that you got all the benefits of platinum right away. No, you get like the basic ones of like, you get to pick a premium economy seat. If you signed up for an economy ticket, you get to board in zone one you get to like but then they don't give you the upgrade points which i think once i hit this last segment then they'll credit me like the you know whatever the the upgrade points are where you get like points that you can put towards a lay flat seat you know on one flight or whatever so what's the goal of all this well the goal like you know if you're gonna fly a lot i think there is a lot of value in these loyalty programs so yes and and part of my goal is what i really care about is access to the Sky Club. I don't really care about boarding the plane that early. And I get that with the Amex, right? So it's like, all right, cool, we're good there. 
Like for six times a year now. Well, yeah, six times. But that's probably now. I'm not going to fly Delta quite as much. But it's nice to know if we are like get into the into the club, uh, up to you know up to a certain point. Um, and then it's like yeah. Otherwise, like you might as well if you can. If you live in a city where it's a hub, you might as well like use the loyalty stuff. If if you can, it's it's almost like just um it either had to do one or the other. You either had to not care at all. Or you got to know what you're doing. Is kind of what I've learned in this process. You've invested a ton of time, headspace, everything, trying to figure out your charts, your way about going on, doing all this stuff. But how are you going to maintain it? Are you just you're just loyal, united from here on out? I don't think I'm going to go out of my way to like, you know, people at the end of the year. I think used to fly like around the country to get their status or whatever. I'm not going to be that guy. That's okay? crazy. Uh, like I don't want to, I don't want to be a status chaser, uh, but okay. it's like I think we fly enough where it's like I think I could maintain platinum. When you look at the numbers, it's like all right, cool. Like we got a few big trips already on the calendar for next year. It's like you, you just got to consolidate into one airline. Um, you know, you chasing that premier one K with your brother? No, I don't. That's the thing. Like I don't, I don't think I need that. I just need like it's nice to know that. You know, if I'm going to fly a lot, you might as well do it with one person so you get some extra benefits. You go, you, you mentioned you're going down to Charleston this weekend for a, a wedding. Yes. How does it feel like this year coming after, coming off of like the hectic year that you had of being the groom and planning wedding and everything else that you're, you feel uh, you're in a different position now going able to, enjoy all these festivities you you've done a ton of bachelor parties this year you know what's right and what's wrong but at the same time it also feels just by the sheer amount of these that you've gone to aren't you fucking sick of weddings yet i'd say part of me is definite yes because there's you know you're gonna you're gonna hear the same songs and you know but each one it is a lot of fun to watch the people you love and care about make commitments and so i try to keep it in perspective the, the part that frustrates me is knowing the frustration i had with the wedding industrial complex and watching some of my friends go through it and and knowing that it's like hey man that's a freight train that i i wish we could as a as a culture slow that freight train down but like my buddy just got married last month you know i was hanging out with him a couple weeks before the wedding i'm like you know how's it going he's like you know man it's just like he and and his now wife are like he he's like we had a conversation like a week ago where it was like we're not these people why we're just it's all this self created stress and you know he's like and, and the problem with the whole wedding industry and I thought he made a very good point about this is like everybody in the in this transaction whether it's the tent guy the caterer the band everybody knows it's a one time there's no lifetime value you know nobody's service doesn't really matter. It's like, all right, well, you're not, you know, this is a one-time thing for you. So it kind of leads to, you know, I think wedding planners and just the wedding, uh, industry, like not, you know, ripping people off or it, it just, it just leads to like a bad taste in your mouth of like, Oh, like, you know, it's not like anybody's looking for repeat business. And I thought I, I never really thought about it. And I thought that was a really, really good point. Um, and it sucks, you know, because it's like, I, w I wish that everybody gets wrapped up in it. They're like, ah, oh, you know, I don't really care about having a big wedding, this and that. And then it's like, you just get swept up. You don't even realize it. You get swept up in it. 
And uh, so it's hard to watch your friends do that. And you're like, hey, listen, that happened to me. I uh, wish I could, wish I could help, but I know like I give you advice, but it trains already left the station on most of it. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of stakeholders. You got to keep the bride's parents, want their friends there, the groom's parents. You know, it's like, oh, well, I love how you not non-negotiables. You went immediately to the parents on both sides. You didn't at all talk about uh, too much like the bride and her her wishes or oh, you touched a little bit on the groom. But I think that there's the the family, the immediate family, and then really like the keeping up with the Joneses effect. Well, plays I think, I think social media here. has had a massive, massive negative impact on the wedding industry. And if you think back, it's like, yeah, it used to be like you – you only saw people's wedding photo photography book and you saw the wedding when you went to it in person and maybe collected some, some ideas from that. Otherwise, yeah, you kind of were on your own figuring it out. And so I think some of that led to like, Oh, stuff getting passed down from mother to daughter, you know, gen like, so, and now I just feel like it's gotten out of control because of like all the, all the videos and pictures and stuff. You can see the Pinterest boards that you can, get into on online, which leads to that. Keep it up with the Joneses stuff. And that that's, I think macro take, I think kind of a bummer, but I, I think the, the weddings, you know, I loved my wedding and I think my friends' wedding have been, they've been a dream as they say, but some of it is just like, man, I wish we could just, uh, I don't know, put some, <laughs> put some guardrails in place on some of this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. I, I can't even think about that spot uh, in my life anymore. What I do think of is like, I, I think often of, man, how am I going to afford it? If this is, this is the standard for weddings in the year 2023, what the hell is going to happen when my kids, when my girls get to be that age? How much is this going to cost me? It's absolutely nuts. Yeah, for sure. By the end of this year, I will have attended nine weddings. So... I think, I think on, that's more weddings than I've been to my entire life. I think I'm on seven. To this weekend is seven. Then I got two more. No, eight. It'll be eight weddings. So this weekend's six. It's a lot. It is a lot. But I also and I'm happy. I, 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 I know I sound like an, an asshole. Like you know, no, it, no, no. I, I, and I take it seriously. Like the reason I'm going to eight of them is because I, I think it's important to show up for people. Hundred percent. And what I was going to say is, we talked about this earlier this year, and and kind of applauding you for your ability to maintain close relationships with the people that you've had in your life. Not only your immediate friend group, but, but some, some exteriors as well. Like it's, it's truly impressive. Which I feel like I could be doing a better job week to week on that. Like call my buddies, keep keeping a regular communication line open, but you're, you're right. I think like the bachelor parties and the weddings have really helped in like, you know, when I'm there, I'm there. Like I'm, I'm going to be, you know, acting a fool on the dance floor. I'm going to be, I'm going to be, you know, engaged. Um, you get all, uh, you, you're partying your ass off which still? Is, yeah. Every single one of these? I think I, I, you know, maybe a little too much at a couple. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, respectfully, like, yeah, they take a lot out of me. But I almost feel like that's my duty, you know? I got to bring the fucking noise, man. Are you the party guy in the group? Uh, no, I wouldn't say that. I would say that I'm probably closer to, to the party guy that I am not the party guy. But, right. uh, yeah, like, you know, I like to, sometimes I like to test the, like, yeah, come on. Why don't we just, 
Why don't we just I still got it? Yes. Yeah, why not? Let's have another whiskey. Nah, why don't you switch <laughs> to guns, man? Come on, we got to go from missiles <laughs> to guns a little quicker. Oh shoot! Well, that's good. I'm glad to see that the the kid might be uh, hidden down there somewhere. Comes out on special occasions. Uh, yes, it does. And there's just been I guess the issue is there's been a lot of special occasions this year. <laughs> <laughs> True. You know, uh, missiles and guns. You know what this weekend is? What's What's going on this weekend? Big, big, big anniversary. Have you ever heard of Operation Gothic Serpent? I have, Cody. I believe that's the Battle of Mogadishu. Have you seen the movie? Black Hawk Down, I think, is... Uh, I don't know. You correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's a top three war movie. I would say it's uh, my number one war movie. Number one? Yeah. So accurate, good depiction of what happened. I would say so, yes. And, this and part of that is because of... Wow. The 1993. Know, yep. October 3rd, 1993. A part of uh, the real, like, it being so realistic, I think, is because since a lot of the Vietnam movies, they didn't, uh, Hollywood didn't really reach out and work with the DOD that much on, but I know, like, a lot of the movies during World War II and stuff like that were basically, you could call them, like, propaganda films because sure. they're, they're used to sell war bonds and everything else like that. But for the movie Black Hawk Down, um, they specifically worked with the Department of Defense and they had the actors came down and they trained at Fort Benning. They lived in the barracks. They went through uh, basically like a, a like an accelerated two week introduction to Ranger life. So for people who do not know Operation Gothic Serpent, military operation conducted in Mogadishu, Somalia by an American task force, that task force name was task force ranger it's happened in 1993 during the somalia civil war primary objective for the operation was to ca capture muhammad farah adid the leader of the somali national alliance who was wanted by a ton of people at the time but more specifically because he continued to attack uh the u.n troops who were down there doing peacekeeping op operations in mogadishu uh, the operation took back took place from August to October in 1993 and was led by the U.S. Joint Special Operations Command. Now, we've brought it up already. This entire, uh, you know, battle, you can watch it on Black Hawk Down. It's very, very realistic. What I will say, Neil, is that when I was a young ranger who just showed up uh, post-airborne school to go to the Ranger Indoctrination Program is what it was called at the time, which, which is your which basic is what, what year is entry, entry-level, uh, 2006, your basic entry-level training to get into the Ranger, one of the battalions within Ranger Regiment. The first guy that I came across was a, uh, a very old, old captain. Um, and his name was Captain Jeff Struker. And at the time, Captain Struker was actually our regimental, um, or one, it's not regimental, but one of the battalion chaplains, which everybody knows chaplains, man of God, they're assigned to you know, majority, most battalions across the, uh, any, you know, echelon of the military. But Chaplain Struker, was Jeff Struker, 
who was very made famous by the movie. And he was the guy who uh, was the convoy commander as like staff sergeant Struker at the time. And I remember like my brain being like, Oh my goodness. Like this is a guy like he got like a RPG through the door was like just a straight, like man, like bullet eater out there, dude. Like he was in an intense, like 24 hour firefight. Like, he was like the dude, everything you thought of as a ranger. And like the guy that I'm seeing now in front of me was like the nicest, most humble, like it, it, officer now, like man of God, that is a complete transformation from the person that he was to the individual that was standing in front of me. And it was just, it was too much for me to comprehend at the time. Now, as uh, you know, weeks and months and years went on, I got to know him a lot and he used Obviously, he, uh, you know, uh, when he was kind of religious before, but he used religion and everything else like that to get over a lot of the post-traumatic stress that he experienced um, from the Battle of Mogadishu. But every year we kick off uh, and celebrate the lives lost during Operation Gothic Sermon by what's called the Mogadishu Mile, which is a mile run in, in full kit. So I will be donning my plate carrier and everything this weekend and going out and running a mile uh, the same way that they did uh, the the remaining soldiers who are trying to get off the battlefield. They could get the um, UN convoy. They didn't have any room. Yep, because the UN convoy would not uh, Are you going to run around the neighborhood? Passage. I will. Yep. So what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to go down to the community park, start there, you know, park the truck there and go, go run Just around. Just you. you. Or you got a, uh, any wingman. Nope, doing it solo. Hell yeah. Send a video. I need some footage, man. Hell yeah. Uh, I'll get it for you. All right, you know what? I saw this on the agenda, and it was such a good excuse for me to go into just a Wikipedia rabbit hole. A few things I saw. Your boy, Austin Scott Miller, all over the Wikipedia page. Four-star general. Uh, I believe here in the booth, I I asked you who's the, the, you know, the general you hold above all other generals and and this uh general miller was the guy you said so it looks like he cut his teeth he was on the uh special ops guys that were dropped into it wasn't a deed they were picking up at the olympic hotel it was his like number two i think was was the the guy they drove into the city to, to pick up Ata. yeah uh what the hell but anyway yes that's where uh General Miller, Scotty Miller, um, he actually did some stuff in Bosnia before that when he was within Reg- Ranger Regiment. But when he went up and got to the got to the unit, he that was his first like big real world mission. Uh, fascinating cat, born in Honolulu, uh, West Point man. Uh, read all about him. Uh, retired four star, shut down Bagram Air Force Base in, in Afghanistan. Was not happy about it. That's what it sounded like. Um, not happy at all. You ever think we could get, uh, you know, General Miller on the uh, trap draw? <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, I will say I, I talked to him uh, quite a bit. And it's funny because he'll occasionally pick up things that kind of going on in, in my orbit and definitely has like no interest in golf at all. But he's, he's involved and said, you know, uh, officer, general officer who retired sits on the board of a lot of, of organizations, veterans organizations that I, um, either donate money to, or, or, you know, are of interest to me. And I think there's a chance. The number one thing though, 
that Scotty, which I, I appreciate, I appreciated him, you know, because it's, it's, he's a unique character, but a lot of people, when they get that high in the military, they, you can see them kind of starting to, to flip, but he had like this steadfast rule where like the things that are talked about are like things that the, the men and women who are doing the operation need to talk about. And like the media was basically like the devil to him. And I know it's because he got burnt. Like a lot of times when he was kind of young in his career, he did multiple stints at the Pentagon working different staff and operations jobs. Um, And he also saw like the people who were his mentors get done real dirty and like partially most of the time, not on their own accord, but the other times because they're kind of just being like, you know, idiots about it. But like you talk about Petraeus and you talk about, McRaven and McChrystal and all those guys. And it just kind of put like a kind of a sour taste in his mouth. Yeah. Like stay out of the news. It's almost like nothing. I keep seeing nothing good happening here, Uh, which, yeah. So listen, he doesn't need to come on the trap draw. He seems more like an off the record dinner guy. He also, uh, he retired and he is the, uh, I don't know if he's the president or the CEO. He might be both, but of this, like an incredible uh, shooting school. So it's not like he just retired and is like chilling on his couch somewhere in Florida, like living the good life. He actually moved out to like the outskirts of Las Vegas. And he is the primary instructor at an organization that's called like Prairie Fire Tactical. And he's literally teaching young soldiers, law enforcement, you know, mom and pop, or anybody who wants to come in to like be better trained, better equipped, and be better able to handle themselves in any situation. Um, so he's still out there doing it. One of the most active guys I've, I've met in my life. And uh, you knew when you were around him, like you're going to be just as active and, you know, on the move as he was. I love that. Uh, all right. A couple other things. So sent me down a wormhole. Uh, my favorite character in Black Hawk Down is Eric, Eric Bana. I believe he's based on uh, Hooten. Yeah, that, that name ring a bell? Oh yeah. Uh, so that guy's a character. Now he's a pharmacist at the VA, uh, <laughs> trying to battle the opioid epidemic in, in Virginia. Uh, but yep. it sounds like that guy's a legend. And I just want to. Uh, so then it got me into you know special ops, just you know hitting the Delta Force kind of page, right? And uh, so I'm curious for you, Cody. Walk me through the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery. Uh, the GT, what was your GT score? My GT score was 137. That's is that high? Like what what is what's what's the what's the I be, highest? I believe get? the I believe the uh highest is either 140 or 150, but the minimum that you had to get on a GT score on your ASVAB to be in special operations was 110. That's that's what I read. So I was I was wondering how close you came to the to the benchmark. Was is that a stressful test? Are you preparing for that, or is it like the Wonderlick test with the quarterback? No, I'm sure you took the ASVAB. Like most uh, college age uh, juniors, or excuse me, high school juniors or seniors have to take the ASVAB. No. Well, maybe it's because it was at that private school that you and your brother went to. But no, the uh, test most- in high school is the SAT and the ACT. Were the only two you uh, have to take. 
Yeah. Part of being, cause every member, uh, you know, I don't know if you know this, but you also had to sign up for the, what is it called? The selective service, I think. Uh, prior to, you know, this hasn't happened, but like, um, you're eligible to be drafted. Any, uh, adult male in the United States is eligible to be drafted. But in order to do that, you had to be a part, uh, and registered in the, the selective service, which at some point in time you signed up for, or your parents signed up for or something like that, but you definitely did it. Uh, but most, um, I'll say with, uh, kind of, I'm pretty sure this is spot on, but if you go to a public school, you are taking your ASVAB. Uh, at some point in time, your senior high school. Now, because I, uh, I can't remember. I'm pretty sure I was just like a fuck boy when I took that ASVAB. Probably didn't pay attention too much. I had to retake it uh, when I went to enlist, and you know, got the got the scores there. But there's people that I know in the military that like, you know, everybody's always like, oh yeah, I could have been a ranger. I could have done that. And you're like, oh yeah, well, like go do it. Like anybody can volunteer to do it. It's not like you got to be like handpicked or something like that. And they're like, oh, I owe my GT score. I'm like, well, there's also courses that you can go to specifically within the military to improve your GT score. Well, what's the test? What's on it? It's almost, it. it so basically it was the closest that I can describe it to was like an ACT. Okay. So it's like math, reading comprehension. Yes. Okay. And and are you going for speed? Like, cause the no, ACT, no. you, you want to, I, I can't remember which one you wanted to answer every question on where you don't get punished for wrong answers. Right. Um, okay. So it's, Listen, it's like a, not, it's like a, a, a educational test. It's not like a, like a Mensa thing. Correct. But there was a time limit, like there's time limits per category, but it was not like stressful by any by any means last the last thing i wanted to point out was i think that ridley scott the director of black hawk down gets i i think he's underrated i don't think he gets enough uh, enough run i mean so just some of what we got gladiator we got black hawk down we've got body of lies i think that's a, a great movie american gangster one of my favorites uh it gets a little it starts to get a little weird like the martian was okay house of gucci <laughs> was fantastic um, apparently he's got Napoleon coming out later this year, which I'm fired up to see. Really? I think, uh, I Phoenix is playing Napoleon. Um, mm. and then, you know, what movie I've never seen that I need to fire up is uh blade runner. People rave about Bla blade runner. One of his, his third movie, 1982 did it right after alien. Uh, I've never seen that one. So God, I don't know if I've seen blade runner either. Well, maybe we need to fire that up and, and give a review on the next booth episode. Ooh, I like that. Uh, and I believe Ridley Scott's brother was also a director. And I think he did Man on Fire and some other uh, Tony Scott. Yeah. So the Scott brothers are, you know, they know what they're doing. Uh, unfortunately, Tony Scott died in 2012, though. What That's do you think? Uh, it's very much a, a, they both followed and, and done some. Some military, both like modern military. Oh, Tony's got uh, but also Top old Gun. school. How about that? Well, that's where I was going. Yeah, Top Gun, um, and like Enemy at the State, which I think is a pretty baller movie, if you ask me. Yeah, that's a good Gene Hackman role. Uh, Spy Game. I need to rewatch mm -hmm. Spy Game. Give that one another shot. I remember that being like just too confusing for me as a like you know fifth grader when I saw it in two thousand one. Man on yeah, Field, spy, Enemy of the State in a spy game and a Man on Fire uh, is a pretty good pretty good run there for Tony Scott. 
yeah, really good run. Don't go too deep down that uh, Google rabbit hole though on on how he passed. Uh, okay, I won't. <laughs> we'll let we'll let people look at it for themselves. All right. Uh, all right, man. I think maybe I think that's it for the booth September edition. Your Winchester rounds complete. Uh, I believe so. Yeah. You got anything else oh. for me? No, Neeler. Where are we at on the uh, ten strain? Uh, so I've missed two days this month, which I'm bummed about. Um, I missed so one by a mile after my buddy Jerry's wedding on a Sunday. I got stuck in traffic coming back to the city. Had to pick up the dog. Just kind of mailed it in and missed big. Missed, missed really big. And then I missed kind of on a ticky-tack one while we were in Spain, which pissed me off. Um, Uh-oh. I kind of assumed, I assumed I was going to get there, and I didn't. Uh, I got to like 9.2, and I went to bed without, you know, checking my stats. So we hate that, but we're going to go get one in right now. And uh, what do we got? Three days left. So we'll take it. If you combine up August and September, I've missed, I think a total of four, which is pretty good. That's really good. You know, uh, I brought that up as a a pretty good segue because I want to give like the biggest congratulations I don't know how this is even possible. I couldn't dream of ever accomplishing this, but our friend, friend of the program, Mac Reader, has been running a mile a day, crossed over the one thousandth two day. It's in not a, row. a mile. I think it's five miles a day. Five miles? Yeah, I think it's five. But I know he he recently posted one thousand days, one thousand consecutive days, every day for a thousand days. I know that's it's not, so a, I, it's either three miles or five miles. I think it's five, but I, I know it's not one. And that's why I've always been like, God, I don't even run five miles. Like when I'm, you know, when I'm grinding. So impressive. Right. All right, buddy. All right. Good Safe stuff. travels. Enjoy that uh, United flight. I'm proud on you for, for meeting all the th- thresholds that they were forcing you to go through. Yep. We played the game. If you're going to play the game, you, you got to play it well. Very well said. See you next time. Bang a lang! Nice is the spot for that track draw. I told him, straight drop this and zip lock that. Right on my waistline is why I kept that strap. I remember nights. I didn't remember nights. I damn near went crazy. I had to get it right. Favorite rapper's favorite rapper. Hey, now I'm your favorite trapper's favorite trapper.